epic fail episode. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Serious Epidemiology, a podcast from the Society for Epidemiologic Research. I am Matt Fox from Boston University, and I'm pleased to be back co-hosting this podcast with Dr. Haley Bannock from the State University of New York at Buffalo. Welcome back, Haley. And we are delighted this month to be welcoming our guest, Dr. Ghassan Hamra, to Serious Epidemiology. Ghassan is an epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins University with a focus on Bayesian methods. Welcome to Serious Epi, Ghassan. Yeah, thanks for having me. So glad to have you here. We got some important questions that we want to ask you about Bayesian methods and Bayesian inference this month. But before we do, we want to we want to run you through the gauntlet of incredibly important questions. First things first, can you tell us something that our listeners would not know about you? Hmm. Well, they might not know that. Well, at least if you didn't go to graduate school with me, you would not know that while I was completing my dissertation, I held a uh, part-time job harvesting vegetables on an organic farm as a kind of mental calm zone that uh, I found quite rewarding. What kind of vegetables? All the kinds. All the kinds? <laughs> yeah, all the kinds that grow in the center of North Carolina. Okay, see, I, I just assume that if you if farms like specialize in things, do they not? Well, that's like agribusness right there where i that wasn't that kind of farm it was pretty small scale kind of operation but it was very enjoyable did you have a favorite kind of vegetable there i usually loved it when it was well at least at first i liked the cherry tomato season because i would just walk through and harvest cherry tomatoes and then pick them off and eat them halfway but i <laughs> got to the point where i ate so many that it stripped the enamel from my teeth and like it was actually really painful to have sweets like i remember eating a donut and just it was not cool i was like this shouldn't be happening right now but i was like all right well i gotta scale back on my tomato consumption okay see i gotta tell you i like vegetables but there is no vegetable worth sacrificing my ability to eat donuts for well that's why i stopped eating tomatoes. yeah that's just smart okay and and i gotta know does does enamel grow back well, it stopped hurting after I stopped, so All right. presumably it hardened again. Okay. Uh, second question. We were supposed to be doing this recording at SER, but of course SER got postponed, so we couldn't do that. But afterwards, we were our plan was we were going to go to grab a beer at Trillium because you are a beer aficionado. Is that correct? Mm, a, a, an enthusiast for sure. Okay. So what is your what's your favorite beer? You mean style or brewery? Clearly, I don't know what I'm talking about. This is very technical, yeah. <laughs> um, now I know. Now I want to know both. Well, then, generally, I gravitate toward IPAs. I don't know why, actually. I think I just got caught up in the culture of it now. And my favorite brewer is probably a toss-up between a place called River Roost, which is in White River Junction, Vermont, and Hill Farmstead, which is a little bit more well-known. But both of them make incredible beer. I enjoy a good IPA myself, but there are definitely people out there who believe that no one actually really likes an IPA and we all just pretend we do. Me. Me. I believe that. <laughs> it's so gross. Yep. I think you just had the wrong ones. And we just pretend we do so we sound culture. Is there any truth to that? 
I don't know anything that's cultured about IPA. It <laughs> doesn't strike me as the cultured beer. I think if there was a cultured beer, it'd be something like some kind of rare Belgian triple or maybe sours or something like that. That seems like the cultured beer cult like group. But IPA, is, it, it does, that doesn't strike me as the crowd. Okay. Now, last question. How angry would you be if you recorded an entire podcast and then afterwards found out that the sound wasn't good enough and you had to re-record the entire podcast? Mm, that's a that's an interesting hypothetical that certainly didn't happen. Totally hypothetical. <laughs> right before, the, no, didn't happen at all, no. Definitely didn't happen in this case, but hypothetically, how mad would you be? Ooh, not very mad, especially if uh, the first round I felt like I could have clarified some concepts and questions a little better. And if I can be circumspect about the whole thing and consider it a practice go, then I think I wouldn't be too upset. Mm. But I might have to be a little raw about the fact that I had to go to a drugstore and buy $5 earbuds to make the recordings work. And then I'm almost certain throw them in the garbage directly after the podcast is over. Don't throw them out. Give them to a grad student. Grad students always need things. That's true. But uh, I'm not sure if they need these absolute bottom of the line, low quality earbuds. I don't think they'll survive I, after this podcast. I, I, I can't promise you that they will make it through this. I'll, let's just hope. Because a third time would be just no, a non-starter. What do you mean a third time? I, this was a hypothetical. That never happened. Oh, right. Of course. I'm sorry. I just got really wrapped up in the hypothetical. Got it. All right. So let's get into talking about Bayesian stuff, Bayesian methods, Bayesian inference, all those things. And so for our listeners, this podcast is designed for people who've got some experience with epi methods. So really, I'm going to assume that most people do have some sense for what the Bayesian approach is all about. But just to get us started off, if you could just give us like a little bit of the big picture intro to Bayesian statistics and how they differ from frequentist statistics. Sure. So the big picture of Bayes, from my perspective, is that it distinguishes itself from frequentist statistics in one major area, which is that it requires explicating a quantitative prior before you do an analysis. That's kind of the big thing. And in that way, I like to think of Bayes as a little bit more of a learning process that happens over time as more and more information and data make themselves known. Frequentist statistics certainly can be made to accommodate something like that, but it's just formalized in Bayes in a little more of a explicit, natural way. And that's kind of why I find it appealing. And I say this recognizing that the first time I used Bayes, I used that kind of idea where I was trying to integrate a quantitative prior, but not at all in the way that people probably think about priors. It was more about figuring out a way to integrate weird constraints on data that were a little more tricky, but ultimately made perfect sense if you could look outside of epidemiology for some of the prior information you wanted. So would it be fair to say that essentially the main difference between frequentist and Bayesian methods is that Bayesian methods require you to specify a prior belief about the, say, if you're talking about an exposure outcome relationship, you need to specify what your prior is before you do your analysis. And then you use that information to somehow say something about what you should be thinking about that relationship after you see the data. Yeah, more or less. I think that basically sums it up. There are kind of minutia of interpretations of confidence intervals and things like that that one could make the case are compelling, but I find to be a less compelling side of the story than the quantitative priors. I find those to be the real sell for using Bayes. So for listeners that might not be all that familiar with Bayes, we've talked a little bit about priors, and I know we're going to get into a bit more, but... 
Can you give us one sentence about what a prior is, or two, or three? Uh, I'll try to make it as concise as possible. It's just information you know before you do your analysis, really. And the way you formalize that can be all over the map in a lot of regards. I think the way that is most intuitive to people is to say, I'm doing this research study on, say, some exposure and some disease, and there have been previous studies of this same exposure and disease, and I want to take those into account in my analysis. So you figure out a way, meta-analyze, select some effect estimates, something like that, and summarize that information and include it quantitatively into the analysis you're doing presently on data set of of interest. And so it's formalizing quantitatively what you would consider to be a, a sort of hypothesis statement in a, a grant proposal or a manuscript. You know, many manuscripts say we hypothesize the effect is going to look like this or, or be this magnitude. Prior in a Bayesian sense is quantitatively integrating that hypothesized effect that you're expecting to see into your analysis. Is that right? Kind of. I always feel that when you explicate a hypothesis in a grant, the implication is a test that you're going to do, which is at the end of the day, you're going to say yes or no. But Bayes, in my opinion, and this is another one of the things I actually do find really compelling about it, is it's more oriented toward estimation in that it doesn't really lean toward the interpretation at the end of the day of, I found an effect, yes or no. It's more along the lines of, I had this information beforehand, which is potentially informing why I want to do this work in the first place. I'm going to integrate it. And at the end of the day, I'm going to report what I find, and this is what it looks like. I'm not going to say there's an effect, yes or no. I'm going to make a statement of confidence, but it's not in the same vein of something like hypothesis testing or null hypothesis testing that is more common and the frequentist tools are more commonly used for. One of the things is about Bayes that I like is the idea of this prior. And I will say up front that I don't have the skills to be able to do much in the way of any sophisticated Bayesian analysis, but I very much appreciate the thinking that goes into the Bayesian approach. And I'm curious from your perspective, why is it that the prior is so important from a Bayesian standpoint? So, I mean, I get Bayes formula, mathematically, you need the prior to get the posterior, but why is it actually important scientifically that we include a, a prior in the calculations for our statistics. Well, I think depending on what you're researching, I think there are a lot of cases where it's just ridiculous to even proceed as if a prior didn't exist, as if there weren't some pre-existing body of knowledge out there that is worth taking into account in improving our understanding of some exposure and disease, or, or at least forwarding the body of knowledge and science. So you could kind of view a study you do as just its own kind of thing, but were you to go and spend a little time in a discussion or an introduction section, you will find that almost inevitably the rest of the literature is a point of discussion. Well why not actually take all that stuff you put in the discussion section and use it to inform your analysis directly and your findings directly and I think that's the real bread and butter of Bayes. Yeah, and it certainly seems to me that's a huge advantage of the Bayesian approach over the frequentist approach, which sort of ignores all of that information. And as you said, we often have information you know, about the hypothesis before we ever see any data. And I guess my argument would be we always have some information about the relationship, because even if we know very little, we should probably expect that if this is just some hypothesis we just came up with, there's probably not going to be a massive effect or we wouldn't really have needed a study to have figured it out in the first place. Do you 
buy that argument? I do, because for the most part, I think if there's some kind of huge effect of X on Y, I'm not sure you you really need a lot to find it. Sometimes it's, it's apparent enough, and it's not really something that's amenable to research studies necessarily. I think if you just look at the body of evidence or the body of epidemiological literature, you're going to see that most effects are fairly small. You're not going to see risk ratios of 10. You're not going to see risk ratios of 0.1. Those just don't really exist. So you can integrate that into a Bayesian analysis pretty explicitly. And the nice feature about that, which we actually have a paper on that, which if anybody wants some readings, they can go to my personal webpage and find some of the publications we've done with this. But we did this publication, Eve Cole, Rich McElhose, and I, where we showed, and others have shown this too, with, with variations on the prior, that you can specify this prior that more or less says, before I do anything, I know that a relative measure of these magnitudes is crazy. So I'm going to more or less discount them, or at least weight them down compared to measures in the range that's closer to the null, or at least not spiked on the null or anything like that, but in the, that's closer to a small effect size. And the nice thing about this and other priors, and this is something people I think get a little cut up on with the prior influencing thing too much, is that when the data and the model are informative, they more or less can wash out a prior that is incompatible, which is kind of the idea of this weakly informative prior that we worked with. So the priors are not the kind of thing that are necessarily going to skew your result in a crazy way, at least depending on how you specify them. And so what I'm understanding on this podcast and from my previous learning is you have this Bayesian analysis where you have a prior, you have your data, and you basically update what you know to get a, a posterior. Can you talk a little bit about A, whether that's right, and B, what exactly is a posterior for listeners that might not be familiar with this kind of term? Sure, absolutely. So A, I would say that's basically it. And B, the posterior can just be thought of as the product of the prior and the likelihood-based information you get out of your data analysis or the approximation, because what you get in that contribution is not directly from the likelihood, depending on the way you implement it. It's kind of an approximation, but it gets the job pretty much done every time. I think the most intuitive way to think about it would be to think of a meta-analysis and just suppose you have two studies that you're integrating via in variance weighting, you can think of one as your prior and the other as the current data and model that you're interested in, and you're combining them quantitatively via an inverse variance weighting approach, and that more or less gets you close to what you'd get out of Bayes. I'm curious, we don't probably teach meta-analysis nearly as much as we should, or certainly we don't teach it to introductory epi students. It's kind of a, something that comes later on. And I wonder what you think about the idea of if we taught more students meta-analysis, whether they would find the jump to Bayesian methods much easier to comprehend, and whether we kind of do a disservice in that sense by not teaching meta-analysis as the stepping stone to Bayes, or do you think it doesn't need that? I don't know that it necessarily needs it, but it is a nice intuitive way to think about it. Because I think when people read meta-analysis, they don't think about more complicated statistical approaches and tools. But every time you hear someone say something about Bayes, I think people kind of get a little anxious or nervous about how the approach is conducted or how the work is conducted because usually when you talk about Bayes you talk about implementation with JAGs and R like just another Gibbs sampler or wind bugs or something like that and that requires different kind of coding knowledge and even though they're kind of out of the box approaches for packages and procedures in SAS, R, Stata, etc. I think people don't immediately think 
that it's quite as accessible to them as a meta-analysis. I mean, Rich Macklow has programmed a meta-analysis procedure on his iPhone. So it seems pretty straightforward in a lot of ways, whereas Bayes, you, you probably can't get away with that quite too easy. Maybe you could. You can post, I think I think Rich has actually tons of free time, so you should probably just suggest that to him. Yeah, that is, that is probably because Rich doesn't really do any of his actual work. No, he just spends his time on Twitter all day. Okay, so true or false, Bayesian methods are subjective, frequentist methods are objective. False, patently false. So why is that? Because that is, you know, sort of the critique that you hear of the Bayesian methodology is that the prior is subjective. I, I can make up any prior I want, and therefore I can get any result that I want. Whereas with my frequentist statistics, I, I'm not putting into that any kind of prior information. It speaks for itself, and I'm, I'm done. I get the objective result. Why is that not a correct statement? I can understand why someone might make that statement, but I also feel that it's a bit naive to think that there's no judgment or subjectivity at any stage of any analysis. I think pretending that there's not is doing a disservice to science because the fact of the matter is that no matter who you are, no matter the procedure you're using, you're making judgment calls the entire time about what covariates or confounders to consider, the estimator to use, the estimand of interest. All those things are decision points that people take for granted and think that somehow they can be objective, which they are absolutely not. There's no manifestation of research, in my opinion, especially epidemiology, that is in any way wholly objective. That's just crazy. I think that the nice thing about Bayes is that because of this perception of its subjectivity, it's forced people who use it to be a little bit more explicit about how they operationalize their prior and come about it. And I think that level of transparency is super helpful and should be across the board in science, should be done. It doesn't matter if you use Bayes or frequentist methods. And the last thing I'll say about that is that one thing that I've learned over the years from folks like Steve Cole and others is the idea that when you do a Bayesian analysis, it's really incumbent on you to include your frequentist results as well so that people can really compare what your prior is doing and then they can really make kind of more informed decisions about whether or not they think the prior makes sense or how influential it is on the results that you're presenting. And it seems to me, and maybe we're not there at the moment where it's easy enough to just do this, partly because of the way that people you know, share data, but also maybe because of the methods. But I mean, couldn't we get to the point at which if your data is available and your code is available, if I don't agree with your prior, I could always put in my own prior and run my analysis and see what I get. I think we should be there. I think that level of transparency and data sharing is vital to science. And I think people hesitate about that. I think there's these perceptions of maybe bad actors skewing things. But I think quality research stands on its own ground and can be defended a lot more than flimsy work and misrepresentations of data and results and just bad research that I think that can be stood up against. And so why do you think that Bayesian methods are not used nearly as much as frequentist methods? I think that they're a little bit more challenging to implement, for sure. I'm not going to deny that. I think not just the implementation side of it, but also the formalization of a prior is work. To get a defensible prior, you have to do quite a bit of background, at least if you're thinking of a quantitative prior that represents what is out there in terms of the knowledge of some exposure and some some disease that you want to integrate into your work. 
In some cases, it's more straightforward thing. Like there's some priors that are not really saying this is what we know about exposures and disease. They could say something more like we have some exposures of interest and we're interested in how they might impact this disease. And we know they're related in some way so we can explicate that with a quantitative prior. And that's often called empirical Bayes or semi-Bayes approaches to work. And they're not that difficult to implement, but I think that they're interpreted to be that way. And depending on how much data and exposures you have, your models can take a long time to run. And I mm -hmm. don't think people enjoy that. I think <laughs> folks get impatient when they have to wait more than a fraction of a second for a result to come up when you press the run button on R. I remember when I was a doctoral student taking a, a Bayes class and we had to use Winbugs and I, I just wanted to pull my hair out. It was like the most frustrating experience. Has software developed since then to make it easier for people to implement Bayesian analyses? I think that there are a number of options for folks who are interested that are kind of more readily accessible. But for those who want to really use Bayes in a more powerful way, you kind of have to learn the software that's a little more involved. But over the years, those software packages and their associated error messages, which can cause people to tear their hair out. It's the worst part. The worst part. It's totally unintelligible. It's like, I have no idea what this means, so it's completely unhelpful. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I remember when I was trying to implement what they what is called like a mixture prior I spent months trying to do it in R with the just another Gibbs sampler package and I kept getting the same error message and I had no idea what it meant and then three years later they post something like Martin Plummer who created the Jags package post something to say oh yeah well we've taken this error message and now we acknowledge that it means these two things which are completely distinct things and now you know that when you see this error message this is the problem and it was just like a repeat loop kind of thing that I was missing over and over again and I corrected it and it worked fine. I was like, it only took three years to correct an error message. No big deal. To be actually associated with a clear idea of what the error was. So I sympathize with those who are struggling with those kind of things, but it has gotten better. It continues to get better. And I think the community of interested parties out there are more willing to be helpful about things like that. And the last thing I'll say is that I, for one, have tutorials on my website. And there are a lot of super useful tutorials online that folks can find that are basically walk you through how to do just very basic Bayesian analysis. Say like, I want to do a logistic regression of X and Y. How do I do that and integrate a Bayesian component? And they walk you through the whole thing. And it, it, it's, it's a lot more accessible now for those reasons. Yeah, and I think that is one of the keys to getting more people to using this is to making the software more user-friendly and to giving people more guidance. But I also think it's an issue of training. Everybody starts off with frequentist statistics. Nobody jumps right into the Bayesian statistics, and I can understand why that is. But once you've sort of gone down that road, it seems to me that not a lot of people then make the jump into spending the time to learn the Bayesian approaches. You know, I know from my training, there was one or two courses available to me in Bayesian statistics, whereas there were frequentist courses, there were 20 or 30 of them. So I do think training is a part of it. Yeah, I agree. I think there might be a single Bayesian statistics class at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health in the biostatistics department, maybe two. The epidemiology department doesn't have one, and probably it could use that because I think those, those kind of more accessible courses in epidemiology that target epidemiologists as an audience would be helpful because I don't think Bayes needs to be thought of as something that you have to contact your local biostatistician to do, which, I mean, you should probably always contact your local biostatistician for something, but not necessarily running a 
basic Bayesian model. If you can do logistic regression. Yeah, yeah I, w- I would agree with you on this. I think that we have disempowered people from using Bayesian methods because I think it's something that is of interest to epidemiologists, but many of us feel like it's just beyond the, the scope for us. I remember as a doctoral student at McGill, we actually had our first biostat course taught by someone named Lawrence Joseph. And we had the first half of the course covering the basics of frequentist analysis. And then the second half of the course was doing the same types of analyses, but from a Bayesian perspective. So it was a really neat way of seeing how these two techniques or approaches, I guess I'll call them, are parallel to each other. And and it was always helpful. And he created a, a textbook sort of resource, a packet that had pages one to 10 are, this is how you do this in frequentist and 100 to 110 are, this is how you do this from a Bayesian perspective. And I always thought that was a very neat way of introducing these two concepts in parallel to each other. Yeah, that's a neat idea. And I think one thing you probably get from an approach like that is understanding that Bayes isn't kind of black box magic. Yeah. It produces yeah. results exactly as it should be expected to. If you have, for example, a Bayes model where your prior is quote unquote non-informative or a weakly informative prior potentially, you're more probably going to get the same numeric results you would have gotten from a frequentist analysis that you would from Bayes. And in that sense, it performs as it should. It's giving you the kind of quantitative results that you can expect. It's not some kind of procedure that is unpredictable in its behavior. So we alluded to in the beginning, this is the this is the second time we're recording this. And one of the things that struck me the first time we, we talked to you about this was I was quite surprised by the way in which it seems to me you are not sort of in the camp of do it the Bayesian way and always do it the Bayesian way that you're sort of quite reasonable in your view of both frequentist and Bayesian approaches. Yet it seems to me that at least if you're viewing it from the outside, most people either fall into one camp or the other, and there's a lot of tension between frequentist and Bayesians. Is that your assessment as well? And if so, why? Why is there so much tension between these two different approaches? So I do think there's a lot of vitriol out there for absolutely no justifiable reason. I don't really get it. I think when you first learn about Bayes, there are these kind of appealing aspects of interpretations and things, you know, the whole Mm -hmm. the refrain of, well, I interpret the results this way in a Bayesian framework, which is the way you think you're interpreting it. And that's like one of the little throwbacks and just things that people go to to justify it. But I just don't find those things particularly appealing. At the end of the day, if I run two models, a Bayes and a frequentist, on the data and the results are basically the same, then what do I care about whether or not I can wave the flag of a Bayesian approach, especially if the lift to do that Bayesian approach was so high or was so heavy that I just expended so much extra effort to do something that gave me no quantitative benefit at all. I think that the best view of Bayes is another tool in your epi toolkit, and one that does have a time and a place for sure, but not necessarily always. I think the philosophical aspects of Bayes could be compelling, but I just don't see them as particularly compelling to me, when at the end of the day, a quantitative difference might not exist. So if I'm looking at a situation where I have, for example, a huge data set and a week prior, I'm not going to bother trying to do a Bayesian approach to something where I know the outcome is not going to be impacted by my Bayesian prior. 
So we think about it as a tool in the toolkit. When are the cases that I really should be thinking geez, a Bayesian approach here might really benefit me? I think when you have a pretty good body of evidence regarding some exposure and disease that you're researching, I think that that is a situation it can come in handy for. I think when you have sparsity in your data, then it can come in handy not just for aiding interpretation of things, but just, I mean, it, it, well, it does aid interpretation of things, but it does so by helping stabilize models. So you can use the weakly informative prior in some model you're doing, and it can provide some quantitative stabilization. I think that's a nice feature. I also think Bayes can come in handy when the prior, the information you have, doesn't conform easily to just thinking about it as something you put in a model. Like, you can't think of it as just, oh, this is a prior effect estimate, and I can give you an example. Like, my dissertation work was about radiation exposure and cancer outcomes, and I had two forms of radiation that I was interested in, and all evidence outside of epidemiology suggested that one form of radiation was much more harmful than another. And so I can integrate that quantitatively with a Bayesian model using order constraints, and it's intuitive and straightforward. And it is not that way to do it with a frequentist approach. So in that case, Bayes was the clear win. But that's not always the case, right? So you have to kind of judge the situation. Yeah, and it's always seemed to me that one of the ways to think about this is if I'm going into a situation where, again, we have no prior evidence to suggest there should be some harm for some particular exposure on an outcome, then maybe I want to go into that a little bit skeptical that there would be large effects, there, there would be highly protective effects or highly harmful effects. I'd be very open to the idea that there might be some small protective effects, some small harmful effects, but I, I'm also open to the idea that the the null is true and if i really go into an analysis thinking that then i can specify a prior that describes that and is going to prevent me from cases where we just you know sort of have some crazy data that suddenly shows us that you know the relative risk is 20 when i really probably wouldn't have believed that anyway and it does seem to me that the Bayesian approach is much more in line with the way we actually reason than frequent statistics. And I wonder whether you think that there is advantage to teaching the Bayesian methods, not just from the standpoint of, of the way that we do statistics, but from the way that we actually teach people to reason about cause and effect and the way to interpret data. Oh, I definitely think that Bayes is kind of more of a win there. And I can't necessarily fault frequentist statistical procedures for this, but they're couched into a culture of null hypothesis significance testing, which I'm sure you can have you can have another episode getting into that. I'm sure you have a litany of guests that would well, we be will. I'm sure Tim Lash is ready ready, willing and able to give you that uh, podcast episode or many others too. <laughs> But I think what's nice about Bayes over frequentist is that is kind of just de facto removed from the situation because any Bayesian procedure you apply won't give you p-values. It's not mm -hmm. centered around this idea of null hypothesis significance testing. You get effect estimates and you get distributions around that to say someone might interpret a confidence interval from a frequency approach, but a Bayesian 95% credible interval would say something along the lines of, based on my prior and my model and data and my assumptions, that I believe with 95% confidence that the truth is somewhere in this interval centered on some mean value. That's kind of more or less a non-so-elegant way of interpreting a credible interval from Bayesian approach. But it's to say that it's oriented toward estimation and confidence statements like that, rather than the orientation of frequentist statistics, which is toward calculating p-values and making kind of yes-no judgments for hypothesis testing purposes. 
And so, okay, so you have this interesting way of looking at it in that you said earlier and you sort of just repeated it then that you don't get caught up in this idea of the Bayesian approach is what you really want in terms of how you interpret your confidence intervals, but the frequentist is different. Just so that so that everyone's on the same page, can you just sort of talk us through the difference in what a confidence interval and a credible interval are in terms of how I would interpret them? And then can you say anything more about why it is that you don't feel like it's all that important that we get wrapped up in the distinctions between the two? I think from a practice side, I don't like to get wrapped up in the distinctions. So a confidence interval is, let's just go with the 95% everybody calculates this approach, right? So 95% confidence interval is if I conducted the study exactly the same way, an infinite number of times, 95% of the time, my confidence bounds would contain the true estimate. And a 95% credible interval is a statement that says, I am 95% confident given my data model prior assumptions that the truth is in this boundary. And that latter interpretation makes a lot more sense to me than the former one, which requires a hypothetical world that will never exist. Right, and a lot of people interpret the confidence interval, as you described it, as a credible interval. You know, they believe that the truth is in this interval 95% of the time. Yeah, I, th I think that that is accurate. But to get back to the practice side of it, depending on the situation, if I have a prior that's weak or not super informative, the actual numeric values that I get for a credible interval and a confidence interval might be identical. So I guess I'm saying that if I could remove the null hypothesis significance testing layer away from frequentist statistics, then I would be a lot happier. But it's so embedded in it that when I apply things with a Bayesian approach, it just kind of gets rid of that little little hurdle for me immediately. And so one of the things that I have certainly heard people say about the difference between Bayesian and frequentists are that Bayesians are largely guided by the data in that if I have data in front of me that disagrees with my prior, I will integrate my that information with my prior and I will come to note some new belief about what it is I should think after I see that data. And so regardless of where I start, the data, if it's compelling, is going gonna, is gonna to move me in one direction or the other. But of course, I could also put a prior onto data that would deal with the fact that I think that the data is poor quality. So I could say I'm going to have a really strong prior because I, I have concerns about this particular data. How do we ensure a process by which the priors are actual representations of what people believe or what the general information about the relationship between the exposure and the outcome is? And it isn't just my desire to manipulate the results. You know, I'm, I'm really asking this as a, as a devil's advocate question because I get the sense that this isn't a huge problem, but it is certainly something I hear raised hypothetically as a problem. Yeah, I think it's just one of those arguments that doesn't really hold a lot of water, in my opinion, because, and this goes back to that statement I made earlier about presenting your results with frequentist results, just as, ge as mm -hmm. general practice, because it's easy to just dismiss a prior as something subjective. So I think that it's easy to dismiss Bayes' approaches by harping about the prior being this thing that's easily manipulated. But in fact, I think it's something that is generally a little more thought through than a basic frequentist analysis because you have to really sit there and digest the prior evidence out there to come up with a prior that's worthwhile. And again, as I, I mentioned this before, but I think it's important for people who use Bayesian approaches to present their results integrating a prior and then without a prior so that people can make judgment calls about whether or not the prior was too influential or not influential enough, perhaps. I think that 
it can be a little tricky to make judgments absent that information. And it's one of those things where I think people kind of come from this attitude, like we've talked about this already, where you might say, oh, if I present my results, then people are just going to take my prior out of context or say it's wrong and blah, blah, and just miss it. But I don't, I don't necessarily worry about that too much. We've talked a lot about priors on this episode, which makes sense because it's an episode about Bayes. But for the those listeners that aren't quite as familiar with priors, you've talked about a couple different types of priors out there. Can you talk a little bit more about what the different options are and maybe how someone would figure out which type is the best for, for what they want to do? That could be a little bit tricky. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, that's okay. I'll, I'll, what I'll say about it is that there are priors that are designed to handle issues of sparse data. There are priors that are designed to help account for bias in analyses. There are lots of examples of probabilistic bias analyses that are conducted with Bayes that I think are super informative. I think the way you formalize your prior needs to be driven with what's out there, with what kind of information we have. And the nice thing about them, I think, is that they don't necessarily have to be based on some kind of meta-analytic summary of all the evidence out there. I think you can take more updated evidence and use it to guide formulation of a prior. And then oftentimes people will suggest that when integrating a prior, you kind of downweight it relative to your data and model. And that can be done quite easily by just inflating the variance you put around a prior. And so it becomes a little bit less influential, but still quantitatively useful in, in your analysis. And a weekly informative prior is when there's not that much evidence out there to inform your prior? Is that different than an ignorant prior? So there's a lot of adjectives thrown around that it gets a little confusing. <laughs> Job security right there. Yeah, exactly, right? So I think to not get too caught up in the minutia of that, I would say generally what one might describe as, an, as a non-informative prior is to say, I don't know anything. The effect estimate could be a relative risk of 0.1. It could be a relative risk of 10 million. I have no idea. Which is bonkers, of course. Right. Mm -hmm. But a weekly informative prior, which we suggest and others like Andrew Gilman have proposed, and I think Sandra Green has a paper on a approach to weekly informative prior, too, is to say, we don't know a ton, but we do think that an effect estimate is not going to be very high or very low. So we want to integrate that and see what happens. So that might be a weekly informative prior, whereas to get outside of those ones, it gets a, it gets a little more complex to explain. But there are papers out there for other kinds of parts, like empirical Bayes approaches and things like that. And so just to, just to go back to something you just said there, my sense is that while it may not be perfectly technically true, that more or less a frequentist analysis is a Bayesian analysis with an ignorant prior, with a completely flat prior. And you said that that is absurd to have a completely flat prior. And I just want to emphasize that because to me, that is what is most compelling. The reason why I got so interested when I first learned about Bayesian approaches is that idea that, of course, it, it, it is completely absurd to think that a relative risk of a million for anything that we study in epidemiology is remotely even possible. And so it just seems to me that there is something, again, that going back to what I said before, that's something more intuitive and more in line with the way we actually think about the world when you use a Bayesian approach. 
Before you finish, I want to talk about some of these Bayesian approximation methods. So you talked about meta-analysis being akin to Bayesian approaches. And I think that typically when I teach Bayesian, and I don't, again, I don't have the ability to teach Bayesian statistics, but I teach it sort of an intro to Bayes to get students to understand really what it's all about and so they can really think like Bayesians. The reaction I always get is, well, is, is this basically just meta-analysis? And I think that leads nicely into some of the Bayesian approximation approaches that Sander Greenland has proposed that to me really kind of look like, you know, meta-analysis where I'm just taking a weighted average of my prior and the data using really very simple statistics, inverse variance weighting. Are those approaches that you would um, support people using? I think so. I think they're nice because they provide intuition about Bayes generally. I can't make an argument against them in some cases because if you have, for example, maybe a single effect estimate that you want to combine with what you would get from your data and model, then an approximate approach seems pretty reasonable. At the end of the day, as long as you're not trying to make these kind of deterministic yes-no kind of statements, I think quantitatively they're almost identical to what you would get from implementing a Bayesian model with, say, Markov chain Monte Carlo or some kind of more involved Bayesian procedure. So I think the approximate methods are really quite nice. And, and certainly computationally, they're much simpler to implement for somebody who, say, has, you know, the, doesn't really feel like they have the ability to use one of those more complicated programs. And so those, it seems to me that there is, you know, Sandra Greenland's got a series of, of three papers. I think you said that the first two were probably the one you would refer to. Those were in the International Journal of Epidemiology, I believe. Yes. And the third paper is kind of oriented toward bias analysis, as I recall, which gets a little more technical for some folks. I think the first two are the ones that most people would find the most relevant to what they're trying to do. I have been listening to you over this podcast and having listened to it previously on our last recording. Something I have noticed is this sort of parallel between probabilistic bias analysis and Bayesian analysis that I, I don't think I ever really thought through. I'm sure others have thought through this before. But at the beginning, you said something about you're taking those sentences in a discussion and you're quantitatively integrating them into your next analysis or into an analysis in a way that most people will just write a few sentences and ignore the fact that there's other research out there. And that's something I talk about when I write a bias analysis paper is rather than just putting a sentence or two in my limitations section, yeah, there might be misclassification, but we're not so worried about it. Yeah, there might be selection bias, but you know, it didn't influence our results that much. And I don't think I ever really saw this parallel between these two distinct types of analyses, both attempting to integrate quantitatively prior knowledge to update your current analysis. And, and that's something that I, I really appreciate you explaining today. So thank you. Yeah, sure. No, I think it's, it's one of those things where that's another thing that I find nice about implementing Bayes from the side of very adaptable and flexible approaches, like using the just another Gibbs sampler or some other software, because you can do those all within single regression model. You can quantitatively integrate prior corrections for misclassification, things like that can all be accounted for. And that's one of the most appealing parts of it to me. And so, Haley, you mentioned bias analysis, and I'm curious whether you have a similar experience with Bayesian approaches in that, you know, if you do a Bayesian analysis, and then you write it up and you submit it, there's a lot for reviewers to, to chew on and to get picky about. Whereas you could have done the same frequentist analysis, and, you know, it wouldn't have been as probably as, as honest about the uncertainty in the 
the results and might have been overconfident in the the findings but it would have you know had an easier time in in peer review because it's just sort of the accepted standard of how we do things have you had experiences like that or does it go in the opposite direction where people say oh you got this really sophisticated bayesian approach that really does capture the the true uncertainty i like it even better I think people have mostly been positive when I've submitted papers using Bayesian approaches. I don't feel like I've had these scenarios where people just say, oh, well, you can't trust a prior, and so we're just going to discount this. I'll say it's a lot more difficult on grant review, but in terms of actual publications of research articles, I think most people are, are happy about, or at least not against, the Bayesian approaches that I'll often use. And I hope that part of the reason for that is that I try to be very transparent with my research findings and the interpretation of the results and how I came about a prior and what that prior actually means. So because sometimes that can get a little bit tricky, but I think spending quality effort on making the prior clear can go a long way to making an article using a Bayesian approach more digestible and acceptable. That comment about grant reviews is, is really interesting. I, I'm sure you have firsthand experience in this, but you know, this Bayesian approach, it really is very similar to what the NIH at least is asking us to do in our grant proposals, right? Because we're supposed to lay out what's out there, lay out the, the weaknesses of some of the prior research and say how our research is going to add to or update the current body of knowledge. So why do you think that there is a, a disconnect between using Bayesian approaches in grant proposals? Or is it just that people aren't as familiar with it? Power calculations. Oh, the bane of every grant proposal. <laughs> I can guarantee you, I, 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 on basically every grant that I've used a Bayesian approach, there is something about power calculations nearly every time. They're not amenable to power calculations. And again, it's a culture of null hypothesis significance testing because that's really where those are couched. And it's unfortunate, but then it's one of those things you have, it's a little more difficult, I find, to overcome. But it can be done, I'm sure. I'll, I'll let you know when that works out for me. <laughs> All right. Last question. Is it pronounced Bayesian or Bayesian? I don't know. <laughs> Bayesian. I don't think so. It's Bayesian. So I've spent an hour recording a, a podcast saying it wrong? No, I'm not sure that is. But I, I know that you've, you've always said it that way. I've always said it this way. And I just wanted to get an expert to weigh in. I always say Bayesian. So. <laughs> Bayesian. Bayesian. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, um, Gasan, you mentioned in the beginning that if people had any, uh, you had some tutorials on a website on your website. You want to plug your website for everybody? Sure. Except I don't want to actually say it because it uh, would be obnoxious to say it and have people actually write it down. But I'm sure a link can be provided at some point. And if you just let, Google my name, you'll find my Johns Hopkins faculty page, and there's a link to my personal website there. And I have some tutorials that are from like a short course I designed for the ISEE. And I have all the materials from that short course online, as well as some kind of tutorial articles that I worked up with others, such as Rich McElhose. So those are all accessible from my webpage. Fantastic. Well, this is a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much, Kassan, for joining us. Yeah, happy to do it.
So for those of you who are not currently members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I do want to I want to recommend that you consider becoming a member. It's a it's a fantastic society. Membership gets you discounted fee for the annual meeting which is coming up in December. It also gets you access to the SER library which is a way to access some really great learning materials, seminars and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. That's epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast which is Casual Inference from the American Journal of Epidemiology. If you like this podcast, I'm sure you will like that one as well. We really appreciate you listening and we want you to look out for our next episode, which will be coming out in just a month.